Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's episode is a great one, a different one, an interesting one. It is with the, Rever- the Reverend Rob Lee. The Reverend Rob Lee is the great-great-nephew, I believe I have that right, of uh, Robert E. Lee, who was, of course, the commander of the Confederate Army during the Civil War. Not a great legacy, and Rob Lee, the Reverend, attempts to reverse that legacy by going in the exact opposite direction. He works on taking down Confederate monuments. He works on teaching empathy through the church. He's a fascinating guy and makes me think about religion in a totally, totally different way. Uh, frankly, if everybody practiced religion this way, religion would maybe not have as many black marks against it as it currently does. Really, really interesting guy. We got into a lot of good stuff. His book, Stained Glass Millennials, talks about young people and efforts to get them back onto religion. Um... And does so in a very interesting way, an inspiring way, dare I say. I did not expect to be talking religion on the Jonah Carey podcast, but here you go. Uh, This is really good. I think you'll get a lot out of this podcast. I should mention here a huge, gigantic assist to the greatest producer of all time, uh, the great Amy Kaufman. Helped tremendously with this one. Amy uh, also has made it her mission in life to meet Whoopi Goldberg. And uh, Rob, the Reverend Rob Lee, appeared on The View, so there is now a Whoopi Goldberg connection. And if I am able to make this happen... Uh, then, or the Reverend is able to make this happen, or any of you are able to make this happen, that'd be great. If you know Whoopi, uh, drop me a line. I really want this to work. Uh, anyway, I think you'll dig this podcast very, very much. Like I said, something totally different, but something uh, well worth listening to, in my opinion. Hey, also well worth listening to. Segway is this week's sponsor, the first of this week's sponsors. That is SeatGeek. Listen, we know all about SeatGeek. They've been sponsoring the Joan Carey podcast forever. In the best possible way, they're the best place to buy and sell tickets to anything you could possibly want. Sports, concerts, what have you. I have used them myself for baseball games and hockey games and concerts and lots of great stuff. And it's terrific. Listen, you go to a ball game, maybe you don't know exactly where to sit to get the best bang for your buck, but they've got a color-coded map. Maybe this week it's behind home plate or down the third baseline or in the upper deck, bleachers, what have you. SeatGeek makes it really, really easy to figure all that good stuff out. They are fantastic. Highly urge you to use them if you are going to any sporting event in particular. Man, baseball playoffs. Baseball, rather, is going on. Basketball playoffs, hockey playoffs, lots of great stuff. And get this. If you download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Jonah today, you will save $20 off of your first purchase. That's right. Download the SeatGeek app. Enter the promo code Jonah and get 20 bucks off of your first SeatGeek purchase. It is that easy. Thank you to SeatGeek for sponsoring the podcast. Programming notes, CBS Sports. You will find a lot of my work there, particularly CBS Sports HQ, where you can see and hear me talking about baseball a lot. Uh, If you go to cbssports.com, you'll find a big old link to CBS Sports HQ. It is a 24-hour streaming digital network in which we weigh in on all kinds of different sports. Myself, the baseball crew, and that's a great uh, crew by its own right. But, you know, NFL draft just happened. You want to hear Will Brinson talk about the NFL draft? You could do that. College basketball tournament just happened. Matt Lorlander is as good as it gets in this business. We've got a great, great crew at CBS, and I urge you to check out CBS Sports HQ. Do that for sure. Also, Sportsnet. I'm writing weekly for Sportsnet, about primarily about the Toronto Blue Jays, sometimes baseball in general. And you can also catch me on Sportsnet over the air, wearing a suit. And trying to sound smart about baseball. Hopefully I am sounding smart about baseball. That would be the goal. Uh, You can check me out there as well. And also worth checking out is this week's second sponsor. And that is Zip Recruiter. Zip Recruiter. Hey, you know what? You want to hire great people? You need a place to figure out how to do that. Zip Recruiter's got you covered. It's better than just posting your job online and praying for the right people to do it. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people for the right ex- with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. It's actually that easy to use. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. And get this about ZipRecruiter. This is quite something. 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. That's right. Just one day. ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there, and ZipRecruiter is how you find them. And how about this? Listeners of the Jonah Carey Podcast can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Jonah. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Jonah. And one more time for the folks in the peanut gallery, it's ZipRecruiter.com slash Jonah. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. That, by the way, noise is my cat, whose name, of course, is Pedro Martinez, making a lot of noise. 
because I usually record these intros late at night, and cats are nocturnal, and he is ridiculous, and his name is Pedro Martinez, so you can enjoy that. Also worth enjoying is this week's edition of the Jonah Carey Podcast. It is with the Reverend Rob Lee, and I think you will like it. Reverend Lee, thank you so much for joining the show. Really happy that you're here. Oh gosh, thank you for having me. So, so much to talk about. I had a chance to crack open your book, Stained Glass Millennials. I know you're working on another book at the moment, uh, but I found this one particularly interesting. And before we get into some of the flashpoint stuff that you've discussed in some pretty high-profile places, maybe the elemental place to start is to is to start with religion. And it feels like it's sort of a third rail kind of thing, you know, that... In a mixed society, a polite society, we're not supposed to talk about politics, we're not supposed to talk about religion, and it feels like that can dishonor people's uh, ability to engage in it, that people are religious in one form or another. But more recently, young people, you argue, have been uh, turned off to some extent by religion. So I guess fundamentally, that's a good place to start. Why do you think that is? Why do you think young people are not necessarily showing up uh, to church, to synagogue, to mosque, what have you, the way that they have in the past? Well, I, I think what happened uh, around the 1950s, one of the most important things that happened was people lived, ate, breathed, were at church, mosque, synagogue all the time. It was one of those things that people felt that they were um, compelled to be at those institutions simply because it was a social stance of the day. And um, you're in, you're in Canada, of course. That's it's it's a very different landscape there than it is here in the South, where I live, where it's still kind of compelled that you go to church. Um, it, in Europe, in in parts of North America, it's very much the case that now that now you don't have to go to church, you can do something else with your Sunday. And um, for some people, or whatever your religious day is, and for some people, that is a very uh, nice reality to have. Um, for me, though, I've always been involved in the church. I've always been there when the doors were open, and I've always seen that there is a um, necessity for the church to be around, because I think at the best, the church and other religious institutions, whether it's a mosque or synagogue, whatever, what have you, I work within the church. I think at the best, um, they call uh, all of us to be better versions of ourselves. Now, we've failed at that miserably at times. I mean, you look at the Catholic Church and their, the sex scandals there. You look at the Protestant Church and all that we have with money and prosperity gospel. Um, we failed miserably. But at, at its best, the Church calls us to be the best version of ourselves. And that's why I still get behind it and say this is something that's really important to me and to a few of my other colleagues who I went to seminary with. Um, you know, we're really, we really, we've, we've hitched our hitching post to the, to the, to the church. And we believe that it's an institution worth getting, worth supporting and worth saying it's, it's important to us. It was interesting. I was struck by one particular thing that you said during that answer, which was people feeling almost compelled to go, you know, that your parents say, Hey, you're, you're nine or 16 or whatever. It's Sunday time to go to church. It's Saturday time to go to synagogue, time to go to mosque, time to go to what have you. That it's something that you you are required to do by rote, by family tradition, what have you. How do you try to engage people to want to go, not to have to go, not to go because you live in the Carolinas and that's a tradition, uh, not to go because it's a religious society, but to go because there is something to be gained from it. That you could look at Sunday and say, you know what? I can go eat bacon and eggs, I can go sleep in, I can go, whatever it is I can do, but I'm choosing to worship instead of doing those other things. Well, I look at it this way. Again, the church at the best calls us to be a better version of ourselves, not only individually, but collectively. Yeah. Um, I, in, in the past six months of doing work with on a, on a global scale with 
with a lot of what I've been doing, I've noticed that people really are yearning for different answers than what bacon and eggs can offer. Yeah. Um, people are yearning for a deeper understanding of what God is and what God does in the world. Um, and you just can't get that at any old Cracker Barrel or um, any old IHOP. There is something to be said about gathering in community, um, whether it's religious or, or, or humanist or whatever, whatever your take is, whatever your, whatever your brand is. There's something about gathering in community and trying to seek out those answers that we desperately need for our, for our world um, because you aren't going to get those from other non-government organizations, as we call them here in the States. You're not going to get those from other uh, places as much as you could get them from the church if the church is being the church's best self. Now, again, I'm going to grant you that the church has not always been its best self, but at its best, there is something to be said about joining in communion with one another and saying, we're going to be different. We're going to do something different. We're going to love our neighbor. We're going to engage in conversations surrounding racism and white supremacy. We're going to engage in loving our LGBTQ folks that are just down the street um, from us, we're going to engage in all of these issues that people have made in the church, um, and we're going to do it better. Um, and I, it call me an eternal optimist, but I think the church can really do that. Well, so it's interesting too because it feels like even folks who can embrace religion, same way that folks who embrace heck sports, that they might not be as eager to go out in the public sphere that if you are if you like sports you're going to sit with your big screen tv and put your feet up and you're going to watch it at home you're not going to go to the football game and that if you want to engage in a religious manner you can sit and read holy scripts by yourself with a cup of tea and, and do it that way that the act of going out in public would seem to be trumped by you know i'm holding my phone it's a podcast people can't see but but you know tapping on your phone and, and doing your thing that we've become a more closed off internalized society in general religion aside how do you fight that that impulse that instinct to be insular that even if you want to worship even if you want to praise god or, or whoever it is whatever it is you worship people seem to be more and more bound by just kind of withdrawing onto themselves i'll use a sports analogy this way um uh, you know since we're talking sports kind of um when, my, when I married my wife, she grew up in Boston. She, she was a diehard Red Sox fan. Uh, she made me choose a different team because I was a Yankees fan at the time. So I, I went with the Cubs because, uh, hey, you know, I, I like an underdog. And then suddenly the Cubs are winning now, and people are wearing Cubs paraphernalia even down here in North Carolina. Uh, you know, the church has got a bad rap right now, so I think people are more insular and wanting to do this by ourselves. Yeah. But I think the hard work, the work that God has called us to is to be in the community with the people that don't exactly agree with us, that may not see eye to eye with us. Um, that's hard work. That's what religion is. Um, spirituality is a whole different thing. And spirituality is, is a good thing. It's good to read Holy Scriptures by yourself and, and in private. Um, but the real risk of this, the real reward in this is being in community with someone who you may not see eye to eye with or agree with, but still love them nonetheless for who they are and what God created them to be. Well, it's interesting too, because, you know, it feels like religion gets linked to certain things that you end up people, people, public figures end up picking and choosing what it is that they want religion to represent. So they say, okay, for instance, I'm Catholic. So in Catholicism, uh, it is not necessarily the, you know, we don't necessarily approve of LGBT communities, for example, or we don't necessarily approve of uh, certain ways of living life, and that those things get picked and chosen. And it seems like the fundamental tenet of all religions, perhaps even more than any Christianity, because Jesus literally died for people's sins, is empathy and self-sacrifice. That is what religion is about, that we're not talking about marginalizing people. And we're not talking about it's us versus them or being in a tribe or anything like that. It is inclusion. How, and maybe this is the elemental question of religion, but how did the message go from one of self-sacrifice, of empathy, of kindness, of giving, of generosity, which, again, any religion, Islam, Hinduism, you name it, that's what it's supposed to be about. How did we get from there to here? What happened? Well, I think the prime example of that today 
any religion scholar work their weight in gold will tell you has to do with the selling of our souls. Um, hmm. We sold our souls to politicians. Um, uh, I, I don't have to tell your listeners what's going on here in the United States yeah. uh, with our current president and his evangelical support that is at an all-time high right now. The man said he wanted to grab women in their private parts, and yet the evangelical church is willing to support them because he's against abortion. Yeah. We've made this an issue-driven kind of institution where you've got to hate gay people, you've got to oppose abortion, you've got to, you know, there's all these tenets that you have to agree to to somehow be Christian. What I'm saying is there's a different way of doing this that is what you're touching on, that is this getting back to the basics of, of, of empathy, of love, of trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes, because ultimately we're all in this together, whether we like it or not. And I, I often tell my evangelical friends who I come in contact with and they want to debate me on who's there and who, who's in hell and who's in heaven, you know, I think you're all, we're all going to be surprised uh, when we get to the afterlife if there is one. You know, we're, we're all going to be surprised. You have to be wholly agnostic on who's there and who's not. Because ultimately, these things that we've, again, hitched our hitching posts to have been political leaders, have been um, religious ideals instead of the God who inspires those ideals, God's self, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned agnosticism too. It's an interesting one. You know, that I would probably describe myself that way. I grew up in the Jewish faith and my grandparents were quite religious, but I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. So I guess I describe myself as agnostic. A lot of my friends tend to fall into that category, whatever religious background their family comes from. They say, we don't know. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. What, would you say to somebody who comes into your congregation who describes themselves as agnostic, they're not sure about a deity per se, but they feel like they want direction in their lives or they want to feel part of a community or what have you. How do you reach people like that who might not believe in God as, you know, we think of God? Well, well, well here's the secret that I don't think many um, preachers that are, are willing to say but I think progressive preachers are starting to say this more and more, is that some of us are wholly agnostic on some of these issues too. Hmm. Um, did the virgin birth have to happen for Jesus to be Jesus? Does there have to be an afterlife for us to do good work? Now, I believe in these things, but I understand that there are plenty of people who don't. But that doesn't mean that you're not welcome in the community of which I am a part. Because I think it takes all of us. I think it takes that, that those people asking those deep probing questions about what we believe about science, about, about all these issues that seem to bump up against the church, and say to ourselves, well, maybe we do need to think deeper about the relationship between evolution and what God did to create the world. Um... We need to talk about climate change as an issue that is deeply faithful um, in caring for our world. These are things that we have to be willing to talk about um, in such a way that even, even the agnostics and the atheists in the room can say, man, they're doing this right. Um, because one of the things I loathe is, 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 the, is the atheists that are just as religious as I am, only they're, you know, atheists. Right. Um, my thing is, is at least give me credit that I'm trying to do good here. I believe you're trying to do good. We're, we're all doing good. If we can all do some good in this world from whatever perspective we come from, instead of trying to tear each other apart at the seams based on our doctrine and dogma, um, I think we'd be much better off. Well, and I mean, <laughs> the things that you're saying make a whole heck of a lot of sense to me, but it is unusual in the religious sphere and, and i guess you know so the dog is barking i guess self-diagnosis is is a um is not always easy self-evaluation but it is the case that you've gotten noticed for a bunch of different things and we're going to get to your ancestors and all that in a second because obviously that's going to be one of the flashpoint things but certainly just your way of going about uh preaching you know has gotten a lot of attention mtv mas and so forth is it literally just because it's very unusual to be inclusive as a person uh, of faith. Is that is that all we're talking about here, or is it something beyond that? Because it, it's, 
again, I, I'm talking to you. Yep, yep, yep. You're, you're checking the boxes. I get what you're saying, but it feels like other people don't. So, so what happened here? Why is it that what you say seems to stand out so much and, and gets you noticed so much? Well, I think there's this tendency to have a liberal quietness uh, hmm. amongst uh, a lot of us in the church. If we're progressive, uh, we don't want to lose our jobs, especially here in the South. Yeah. Which is something I ended up doing anyway. But that's being said, you know, like, if you know my story, one of the things that I've always said is I stand by what I did. Um, I stand by going on the VMAs, saying Black Lives Matter, because I think that's deeply spiritual and religious to uphold a group that is marginalized, because that's where Jesus would have been in the first of course. place. Jesus would have been in the Black Lives Matter marches and, and, and rallies. He would have been there. Um, I think a lot of people actually agree with me. But I think there is this tendency to be quiet about it lest we get our country club um, membership revoked, especially down here in the South. Because uh, I, I can't, you know, I'm trying to articulate this to, to, to a bunch of listeners who may not be familiar with this, but yeah. down here we have a very set way of life. We have a very set way of doing things. We have a very set way of believing in things. And anybody who pushes up against that is going to face that criticism that you're not one of us. And even as a Lee that hasn't protected me, the, 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 the name that is most uh, associated with the South has not protected me from the, the insult and injury of being inclusive. But I wouldn't have it any other way. Because I do believe that there is something to be said about saying to our LGBTQ friends, to our to our black neighbors who don't attend our white churches, that you are welcome in this space and you deserve to be here. Um, because by the grace of God go I, and by the grace of God go all of us. Um, we, we're in this together whether we like it or not. Well, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, in the speech, you talk about Heather Heyer, you talk about the Women's March, you talk about Black Lives Matter. And... A cursory evaluation of each of those mentions. Hire is a lady who just got killed. I mean, that, that should be as uncontroversial as possible. The women's marches, okay, women are have concerns, and men have concerns. They're going to march. Fine, people march for all kinds of reasons. You can march for gun rights. You can march for anything. It's America. March for whatever you want. We're all good there. But there's something about Black Lives Matter, something, quote-unquote, that really gets people agitated it's been spun into a movement that has nefarious means. And all it's saying is black folks have been oppressed for centuries. That's, that's it. And we, we, we're hoping that it gets better. It is so elemental and so not offensive at all. It is blatantly no duh obvious that if you are a person of color, you have been oppressed in America for centuries. This should be the easiest thing in the world. And yet to even say those three words, to say that black lives matter is horrifically, apparently, horrifically insulting to your congregation, to your former congregation, and to a lot of people. So, I, I mean, I guess the, the question just becomes, are, are people just too racist to handle this? Can, can they just not get around the fact that white people and black people and, and brown people and what have you should be on equal footing? Is that literally it, or is it more complex than that? I think it's a little more complex than that. I think what we run up against is that the people here in North Carolina that I love deeply, yeah. um, including my own relatives, watch one news channel um, that has painted the picture of Black Lives Matter as a riotous bunch of looters who want nothing but the destruction of everything that we hold dear in this country. Um and I've watched some of that. I've watched Tucker Carlson. I've watched, um, you know, Sean Hannity and all these people come up against Black Lives Matter as if it is tearing apart the fundamental nature of this country and who we are. But I see it quite differently. I actually see it as a weaving together of everything we hold dear. Mm. I see it as people coming together. And acknowledging that for a long time, all that has mattered has been white lives, or some people will say all lives, or some people will say blue lives. It's obvious to me that the lives matter part is not what they're concerned about. It's the fact that we put black lives in there that concerns them in this conversation. And so I think about it this way. It would be like me going into a breast cancer rally and saying, you know, this is great. But prostate cancer is really important, too. Yeah. 
Of course prostate cancer is really important and we need to treat it. But right now we're having to focus on breast cancer in the same way people are saying black lives matter. And people say, wait, 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 all lives matter. You know, that's what well, that's what's that's the comparison that I try and make to people is that this is not acknowledging that their black people are superior, that they're in any way deserve more rights than we have. What we're saying is they haven't had any rights for so long. Yeah. They're being gunned by peace. They're being hurt. They're being discriminated against in colleges and universities that I work at and uh, in systems that I work in and work within, and yet we're doing nothing about it. And that's dangerous. And if people can get that through their heads, I think we might change the perspective of this conversation. The through their heads part is what stands out to me. You are, um, in addition to being a person of the cloth, you're highly educated. You have a master's, you're gonna pursue your PhD, which is very exciting. And you, we, as a society, cannot expect everybody to get a PhD. I have a BA, that was enough for me. There are people that don't go to college or people that don't finish high school. Mazel tov, takes all kinds, that's fine. If we're not all going to educate ourselves to the hilt and be sitting in school until we're 35 years old, how do we get the message across? How do, forget anything about the messages. How do we get the, the, the notion across that Fox News or whatever one source does not have all the answers, that you need to have a kaleidoscope of opinions, synthesize them, use critical thinking, and figure out what's what. How do we as a society get to that point rather than people using confirmation bias, hopping on Facebook, hopping on Fox News, or whatever, I'm not saying left, right necessarily, and just deciding that something is and there can be no other opinion? I think the biggest problem that we have is we live in our own echo chambers. Yeah. Um, we like to hear what we like to hear. I mean, we, you know, that's why we pick out our churches. That's why we pick out our news channels. That's why we pick out our radio stations and our podcasts is that we feel like we deserve not to have to hear anything else. My wife and I have this game that we play where we turn, you know, I'm, I'm a progressive person. So I'll turn on Fox news and see how long they can last without changing the channel or throwing the remote at the TV. <laughs> um, but that's important, I think, because if I'm not hearing what the other side is saying, then it's contributing to the polarization that this nation and this world has seen in the past uh, since the 2016 election in the United States and well before that. Yeah. Um, I, I think that there has been a, a sense that we have to be one side or the other. There's no gray area that we can come and sit and talk. We have to have demilitarized zones in Korea so that people can come and talk without blowing each other up. I mean, that's how polarized this nation, this world and this nation has become. And so I don't want the demilitarized zones to happen to all of us where we have to go and sit and talk on a phone to each other so we won't throw things at each other. I want us to be engaged in deep conversation that is so important and so uh, incremental and uh, small at first and then large at the end to where we can say we've accomplished something. We've changed each other's minds. And I'm not saying that I want to change your mind on everything. And I probably need to have my mind changed on some things too. Yeah. But you have to be willing to admit that at first. And I don't think our people, um, especially here in the South, are willing to do that. We have this tendency to, um, well, I said it, I believe it, that's what's going to happen for the rest of my life. But I look back over the trajectory of my life, and I've been changed. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. What are some of the biggest ways that you've changed? I've heard you talk you know, from time to time about it, but it sounds like your uh, opinions have really, you know, I guess for lack of a better term, progressed since, let's say, adolescence. And you've come up in a certain society with certain influences, and day to day, your mind seems to be changed on certain flashpoint issues. What are the biggest ones that stand out for you? I think the biggest issue that I've been changed on... Um, it's not so much an issue, but a way we go about doing life. Hmm. I would say that my biggest change has been my willingness to speak up. And I wish more people would have that. No matter the cost, no matter the pension you might lose or the, um, the money you might lose in losing your job for speaking up. I'm talking about my situation in particular, sure. but 
and translate it to your situation, of course. Um, I, I think about it that way. Like I, I was afraid to speak up because I was afraid of what it would cost. But once you're free and liberated to speak the truth and speak truth to power in such a way that people are willing to um, listen and say, okay, this is important, that is life-changing and life-giving. Now, of course, I've changed on issues. I've grown. I took down a Confederate flag from my room that I had. Um, I don't think I was ever, like, inherently, like, you know, all lives matter, but I just was proud of the South. Yeah. And I, as any person, as any kid would be of their heritage. But once you learn that that heritage is filled with hate, I don't see a point in having it there in the first place. Um, I, you know, and so I, I took it down and that was, that was a life changing experience for me. So all these things have been me learning that it's important to speak up and speak out in the name of what we hold dear. Well, and it's interesting too, you know, you, you cited the place that you're from and pride and all that. I'm Canadian. I grew up in Canada. I lived in the States for 20 years. I just moved back to Canada. I feel a great sense of pride in being Canadian. Canada, like every other society has flaws. I acknowledge them and so forth. The South can be a great place to live. It has flaws. Every place has flaws. Every tribe, every inclusion, every group has flaws. If we are to shine a light on those flaws and say, wow, you know, we're struggling with this, this, and this, does it weaken those bonds? In other words, let's say that you're, we'll use the South as an example. Let's say that you're from Statesville, North Carolina, born and raised, very proud and all that stuff. If you're going to Shine the spotlight on yourself and say, gosh, Statesville hasn't always been so awesome about this and this and this. Does it inherently weaken, weaken those links and bonds? Or is there a world in which you can have a pride of place, have a pride of family, pride of religion, pride in friends, pride in local football team, and still be able to say, you know what, we're kind of not great in this way and that way. You know, I always think of it this way. There's this here and now and then and there. Right. Like here and now, Statesville, I love it. I love I live here. Uh, we bought a house. My wife and I bought a house here um, because we love it so much. I, I wrote my book about growing up in Statesville yep. and, and the challenges of the South and um, loving it, but also knowing that it has its problems. Um, we may get run out of town because of that. But by God, if it changes one person's mind about how we do things here, it will have been worth it. Hmm. Um, there is this inherent danger for people to want to silo themselves off, whether it's in Statesville or, or, or wherever, you know, across the world. But if we're willing to come to a table and sit down and break bread and share a beer or wine and say, you know, look, this is the problems that we're facing. We're facing problems with policing. We're facing problems with schools and education and how we talk about these issues here in the South. But we also have some really good things going for us. We have food. I mean, for God's sakes, if you've never been to the South and had fried chicken and biscuits, I mean, you are missing out. The food culture here is amazing. The religiosity, the um, the inherent just caring for your neighbor yeah. that's present in the South is like none other. And I will stake my claim on that. Hmm. And so what it is is it's celebrating the good while also acknowledging that we have work to do. Uh, let's get into Confederate monuments because that has become, you know, one of the flashpoint issues and what you talk about on the pulpit and so forth. Uh, obviously your ancestor, Robert E. Lee, definitely a controversial figure in U.S. history. And, you know, I guess we'll start with the rote question, which you've been asked many times and we'll kind of progress from there because there's room. But, you know, it, it does warrant an answer, which is that, you know, history is full of good and bad and what have you. Monuments are supposed to be a marker of U.S. history. So why would you take them down? I think the problem with Confederate monuments is there. It's a twofold issue. Um, it's an issue of empathy and it's an issue of education. Yeah. Um, Empathy-wise, when my confirmation mentor, who is a person of color, walks by the Confederate monument that we have here in Statesville, she feels uncomfortable by it. I may not feel uncomfortable by it, but as a white person, I should care about how my neighbor feels, about how someone who is important to me feels about that statue as she walks by it, because it was a symbol of oppression, which leads to the second point, which is education. These monuments were not put up right after the Civil War. Nope. <laughs> they were put up. Um, this one was put up in the 19, early 1900s. 
um, and rededicated in 2006. So this is my hometown. This is not this is not some far off place. This is where I am right now. They rededicated the statue in 2006 using the Confederate motto, which is "God will justify." So there's that's a pretty provocative claim, and they don't see provocative in it. They see it heritage, but whatever. I'm not going to get in that argument with them. Sure. But what I am saying is that there is education to be realized that these statues were not put up right after the Civil War um, to memorial. They were to um, terrorize by the Klan, by, um, by Jim Crow supporters, um, by people who felt that there was a reason the Brown v. Board of Education um, shouldn't go into effect. I mean, these statues were up as late as that. Um, their statues still being dedicated today. Schools still being named after that today. Um, Monday was Confederate Memorial Day in Alabama. I mean, we, we are, it is 2018. We, you lost the war. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand. And, um, you know, civil strife is really hard, but I also re recognize too that Robert E. Lee in his own letters and diaries was against monuments and memorials to be put up because he said that the feelings engendered would contribute to civil strife. And I disagree with Robert E. Lee, my ancestor, on a lot of those issues, a lot of the things he did, but that is something that I can agree with him on, that the building up of monuments to the South has contributed to civil strife ever since they've been put up. Well, and two, I believe you made this point of view, but I think you've said it more than once. I've been to Berlin. Ain't no statues of Mr. Hitler in Berlin. It's just not a thing. You don't do that. It's It's... Yeah, it's part of history. Not all of history is terrific, and you pick and choose. And, you know, one can argue that fighting for the heritage of the South is not as egregious as exterminating Jews and what have you. But we're still but talking about... You were enslaving people in Well, the that's South. exactly. That's not, not exactly... the hands of white people. It is. It is. It, it may not be as broad in scope, but, but the evil is still there. Um and by vocation of my baptism, when my parents had me baptized, one of the things they said was, one of the questions they were asked is, will you confront evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present itself? That's the baptismal liturgy. Yep. They said, yes, with the help of God, we will. That's pretty serious stuff. Mm -hmm. And I take that very seriously that my parents had that done for me. And then at my confirmation, I was confirmed. And at my ordination, I was, you know, all these things happen. And I have to take those evils seriously and confront them for what they are. Was it a burden for you? You mentioned your upbringing and, and getting baptized and so forth. How is it to be the uh, descendant in both familial ties and actual name uh, from Lee, who, you know, again, the majority of his stances and, and what he now stands for, uh, you know, represent a negative era in the in the country's history you are somebody who's fighting the other way do you view this as a motivator was it a mark of shame for you when you were 15 years old how did you come to terms and come to age come of age with having this on your back one way or another this is going to be you in some form until the day that you die yeah um, people have often asked me, well, why don't you just change your name? Well, that's not as easy, you know, I don't think that, I, I'm Robert Lee, I'm proud of who I am. Yeah. Um, the difficulty is that the the larger footnote in history will always go to my ancestor, Robert E. Lee. Mm -hmm. But I've determined, gosh, ever since um, MTV and the VMAs, that I'm going to be a different footnote. There's going to be a different Robert Lee in history that stood up for something else besides states' rights to enslave people, um, which is another thing. I mean, people say the South fought for states' rights, but they never finished that sentence. They never finished the sentence that it was to enslave black people, yes, um, to enslave Africans who they brought forcefully over to this country. Um, you know, we have people... Um, in our current administration who were claiming it, Ben Carson even uh, was claiming that, you know, um, Africans came over here for opportunity. And I'm just like, okay, th this is a fundamental problem of how we view history, um, of how we look at history, of how pernicious racism and white supremacy can be. 
is that the South may have lost the war, but we won in the history books. Um, and so when people come to me and they say, oh, you're Robert Lee, you must be so proud. It's not a, and for me, it's a kind of like, well, this is awkward. Um, you know, I was having blood work done the other day and the man was, um, sticking me in the vein. He said, oh, you're Robert Lee. And I was like, what do I say? You know, he's got a vein, he's got a needle in my arm. I can't say, you know, well, gosh, uh, these feelings engendered are not what I'm supportive of. Um, I can't say that. I, I, he's got a needle in my arm, you know? And so I, I just think to myself, well, gosh, how can we change the narrative in such a way that Robert Lee is associated with a time and place in history, but not the current heritage that people of hatred are trying to uplift. Well, and I think the frustrating thing for me is that history is supposed to be extremely objective. These things happen, let's document it. And yet you, you cited, you know, who gets to write history. Let's look at the textbooks. You know, the textbooks predominantly come from Texas. Texas is still, although it is changing, is still a red state, and certainly the people that control the levers, uh, you know, have a certain view. And, I, I, you know, I lived for two decades in the States, and I'm still both cynical and mystified by the politics of it. I get the idea that one party is for small government and one party is for larger government. That is a legitimate argument that you can have. I don't want you to interfere with my life. Taxes should be lower versus, you know what, schools and roads and hospitals and so forth. Great. That is a, I, I have friends on both sides of the spectrum. Totally makes sense. I get all that. But to galvanize people to the polls, to get them to drink your Kool-Aid, to get them to believe in, let's say, your tax cuts or, or whatever, you have to literally rewrite history and make it so that people can identify. It, it just drives me crazy. It's just such a, a, an incredible thing. It's just let's discuss schools and roads versus tax cuts and move on, not, you know what, I'm not so crazy about people of color. Okay, but I'm going to go vote for you. And, and I just... I don't even know if I have a question here. It's just this thing. Uh, there's a book called What's the Matter with Kansas? And, you know, and it's, it's Kansas was a liberal state. And then it was decided that in order to build a coalition, you had to tap into people's dark side. You had to be like, you know what? OK, you're this tribe. You're this tribe. Go hate these people and come vote for us. Can we ever separate those impulses? Can we ever have a legitimate political debate? in America, in the world, without getting into a religious debate, without getting into a human rights debate? Can we just separate those things and literally say schools and roads versus tax cuts? You decide. I mean, gosh, um, I hope so. Yeah. I hope one day we could. Uh, right now, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen in 2020. It's no. not going to happen in 2018. It's not, I mean, it's going to be a vicious fight to the death. Um, but you're on to something there. You're on to the reality that we, especially in America, like to think very highly of ourselves and um, what we do for the world. Um, and, and some of my friends in Canada and, and other places are like, well, you also need to consider the implications of what you're doing for the rest of the world. Um, and I think that's something important, too. When we're removing funding from United Nations peacekeeping efforts... When we're, I mean, like, that's a legitimate question on small government versus big government, but the implications of these actions and what you're talking about, we can talk about schools and roads and stuff like that, but the implications of those actions leads to a far more detrimental to not only our society, but the society uh, of, of the world. Um, and that's really dangerous to me and something I think about every time I go to the polls and vote is who would I rather have working through these issues, um, not only for me, but for the person who um, in Syria who needs our help, you know, these are big issues. These are big decisions that someone who is, you know, dangerously unstable doesn't need to be making. So, well, and it's funny because the American dream has put forth. It's about manifest destiny. It's about taking what's yours and would seem if un unfiltered, if you just took it on its literal level, would seem to be. All right, go get yours, and you have to decide if you want to have empathy or not. You have to decide if you are going for the proverbial gold rush, if you want to bring your neighbors along, or if you want to accumulate as much gold as possible. That you know, worldwide, their their individualism is going to play. I mean, even in you know societies that have been under communist rule, what have you, we all want to have means for ourselves, but there is no governing 
governmental principle of you by law must be empathetic. And it feels like that's where religion could come in. But maybe you do make $700,000 a year and you're very well off and you're doing great. Hey, by the way, here are all these other people who are disenfranchised, tithe, volunteer, do whatever. It feels like religion is the place that can bridge the gap between, yes, American dream is awesome. Go for it. I hope you become a successful entrepreneur. But you know what? There's lots of other people too. It feels like that could be, you know, in part your role is just making people aware that it's not always about yourself. Well, here's the secret that I think we're missing um, in this conversation is that the American dream is deeply broken. Hmm. You living in the States may recognize that. Um, but uh, I think for me, one of the things that I recognized in the 2016 election that hurt me so badly, I mean, I was hung over the day after the election, not from alcohol, but from just like the feeling of like, oh, my God, what has just happened? Because the idea to make America great again – um, when was America truly great? Was it in the 1950s when black people were disenfranchised from the vote? Was it in the 1860s when we fought for slavery? Um, when was America truly great? What are you looking for again? That's a dangerous question that I think is deeply broken in the American dream is that somehow we've lost something and we have to regain it. I would argue that the American dream has been deeply broken since day one, since its inception, since we've started this nation. Um, because we built it on the backs of slaves. We built it without women. We built it without the contributions of all these great people because we thought they were less than and inferior to. Um, and so I, I, you know, I'm a big Star Trek fan. And there's this episode um, where Captain Picard is about to fight um, the Borg and the Borg are his worst enemy. And he's touring the ship, and he gets to meet um, up with his bartender, Guinan, who's played by Whoopi Goldberg. And he asks her, um, did the Visigoths really know that as Rome, you know, did the Rome, Romans really know that as the Visigoths were marching over the seven hills that Rome was about to fall? And, and Whoopi Goldberg responds, is all we can do is turn the page. And I think that's really what America has to do, and our world has to do, is turn the page. Because we've been stuck at this, this, this page for so long of inequality, of disenfranchisement, of hatred, of bigotry. We're just going to have to turn the page and see what's next and seek reconciliation with our neighbor. And I think that's where religion comes in because, you know, if you look at the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission during apartheid in South Africa, Desmond Tutu sat there in tears mm. as white people confessed their sins. Um, during apartheid. We never had that in the United States. We passed the Voting Rights Act. King died in 1968. And 50 years later, we still haven't reconciled for what happened. We thought we buried King, and we thought we buried a legacy, and, and we could just move on. That's what happened. When you cite King, too, I, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your work at the King Center. And obviously, when you are a person of the cloth, somebody who's educated, somebody with strong beliefs, you can go in a bunch of different directions. What is it about the King Center that resonates for you that makes you want to throw your weight behind that cause in particular, as opposed to 50,000 other very worthy causes that you could stand behind? Well, the King Center has had a special relationship with me. Um, Bernice King, who is the director of the King Center, uh, is the daughter of the late Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. Um, and uh, this is actually um, this week, April 27th, is Coretta Scott King's birthday. And so they're having a big uh, celebration of her birthday. And I think about it this way. You know, there's so many charities and so many people doing good work, but the King Center has been there through most of it. Um, if we're going to throw our weight behind something, we need to throw our weight behind issues and organizations that have been there for the long haul. And the King Center has been there doing good work for nonviolent social change, talking about peace activities, talking about how King mobilized a, a group of people without lifting up a gun. Um, you know, we, 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 you know, he used the First Amendment instead of the Second Amendment uh, to change the course of our history. And the King Center is quick to remind people of that. And I think it's a very important organization. And if you haven't looked it up, it's in Georgia, Atlanta. They have the, the, the King Monument there. Um, they, they have where he's buried. They have the historic Ebenezer Baptist Church. But there's also a great website with records and papers that he wrote 
Um, it's the Martin Luther King Center for uh, Nonviolent Change. And one more question. Um, you are going to pursue your PhD. Uh, you were with the church in Statesville, obviously due to the controversy you elected to step down. You look down the road a few years, you've got your doctorate in hand. I'm sure you get lots of invitations to preach in lots of different places. What does your future look like to you? Is it, you know, getting up on the pulpit every Sunday? Uh, is it doing that in a community that is similar to what it was in Statesville, where most people are probably going to disagree with you politically? Is it doing it in a highly liberal place where, you know, you're literally preaching to the choir? Uh, is it not at all taking a traditional pastor's route and rather going out and doing whatever, missionary work, charity work, whatever, but not necessarily having a go-to every weekend? What what might your future look like? How do you think you can affect the most change? You're a young guy. How do you think you can affect the most change going forward? You know, that's one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately. And one of the things that comes to mind is, and to get a little religious here, is the same God who called me is the same God who will bring my work to completion. And I think of it that way. I, I can't tell you where I will be in five years, but I know that God has something great in store for that. I know that I have a wonderful wife, a wonderful family, a great poodle um, that I love dearly. And um, I know that deep down all will be well. Um, but I know also I didn't sell my soul in the process. And I'm really proud of that. Because in Mark's gospel, it says, what good is it to gain the whole world but to lose your own soul? Um, I've seen a lot. I've been able to do a lot. I've been privileged to speak at a lot of places. But I know deep down it's all because that our world is in desperate need of some people to speak up. And I'm not the only one doing it. I mean, there's plenty of other people doing it. Um, and I hope that your listeners would do some research and see those people too. Um, people who I've come to know as friends on this journey who are willing to uh, invest in change, not for the sake of change itself, but because they believe that something's going on in this world that's worth waking up every morning and getting out of bed and going to work for. Amen to all that. And uh, Reverend Lee, I very much appreciate your work and uh, your candor and your uh, eloquent thoughts on all this stuff. Um, best of luck in all your future pursuits. And uh, let's circle back. I want to have this discussion again a little bit down the road as you're continuing your study and yes. as you try to pursue uh, other avenues. So thank you so much, Paul. For sure. Thank you so much.